So tonight we will be in the book of Judges. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So I'll be reading the entire chapter. So uh, buckle up, because I'm going to read this whole thing. So, um, but, uh, but it's a pretty, uh, it's pretty exciting reading. So, so it's not like reading the first couple chapters of Numbers, right? So <laughs> we're not doing genealogical lists here. So, um, all right. Uh, but I'm going to be reading, I'll begin in chapter one, verse one in the book of Judges. You can find it on page 200 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the, per- and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at, at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, the Negev, and in the lowland. Uh, And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Uh, Now, the uh, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Uh, And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of of the Negev, uh, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, uh, Moses' father-in-law, went up, and the people of Judah from the city of Palms into into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Uh, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord is with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph went up against Bethel. 
and the house was, and the Lord was with him. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. Uh, that is the name, that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh uh, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. Uh, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or, or Ahlab uh, or of Aksib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob so that the Asherites lived among the, the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in, in, uh, in Ijalon, and of Sha'albim, uh, but, the, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent uh, of Akrabim, uh, from Selah, and upward. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, Bok, to Bokim, and he said... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land and I swore to, that I swore to give to your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called on the name, they called the name of that place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So back when Leslie and I lived in Georgia, there was this great Italian restaurant. And Leslie and I, Leslie had even worked there as a server for, for a while. And I love to try new foods and new things. And so, um, so I got there, and I looked in the menu, and I saw this thing called the Tour of Italy. Okay? And so I ordered the Tour of Italy. All right? Um, which, which was supposedly this dish that had, like, a samplings of several different types of food. It's a Tour of Italy. Um, unfortunately, what arrived on the table was a mess of uh, deep-fried chicken patties covered with marinara and cheese. And you couldn't really dis distinguish one dish from the other. You know, some might say, well, that sounds delicious. And I'm like, yeah, well, some of it was, but to a point. You kind of hit a point where you wanted to have something different. 
And uh, and and I got and I still get the feeling that not everyone in Italy has their chicken deep fried. So, but. Uh, and so, you know, I ordered a tour of Italy, but I came away from the meal confused and with a bit of a stomach ache. Uh, now, and I think readers might experience a similar thing when they read this chapter, all right? Uh, because this chapter is filled with a dizzying, dizzying array of names and tribes and enemies and, and places and cities uh, it, that when you're, when you're done reading it, you're not exactly sure what you just read, much less what in the world it means for you or for your life as a Christian, how we're supposed to apply this or understand it. Well, to begin, it, it's it, we are here at the death of Joshua, and what is here is described Israel's uh, basically they had come into an initial possession of the land earlier under Joshua, but uh, in kind of their lightning attack through the through the land, but now they needed to come into full possession of it, and this describes that attempt to be, take full possession of the land. And so in the process, we observe, as we're, as we're considering this chapter, we're going to consider three things tonight. We're going to consider, first, a geography that preaches to us. Secondly, we're going to learn lessons from the field of battle. And third, we're going to observe the people of God snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. All right, so first, we are going to look at a ge geography that preaches in chapter 1. And we need to get a little bit of an orientation with the land that we're dealing with, because we're going to be moving around in the book of Judges uh, with the land. So I'm going to bring up this map here, and it's still kind of hard to see, I know, but, um, but you, can, you can see kind of the general uh, breakup of the different tribes, even by color, even if you can't really read the names. And, uh, and so now many today have a, a hard time remembering, um, you know, U.S. geography, uh, let alone world geography, let alone the geography of ancient Israel, right? So, uh, and, and so, but we have to bear in mind when they're saying these verses, I mean, when they're saying that these names of the towns, they might as well be saying, uh, you know, they might be able to sing like Jackson. You know, they might as well be saying, you know, Memphis. Uh, you know, they might be as well be saying these towns that we know, that we would know. These are familiar names to the original audience. They know where those places are. They might live in those places, right? And so whether you're a geography whiz or, or, or not, we do need to get ahead or, or, our head around the territory that we're dealing with. And so if we're looking at the chapter, the, verse, the first 21 verses uh, deal primarily with the exploits of Judah and Simeon, and then a little, just one little verse for Benjamin, okay? And, uh, and so Judah and Simeon, uh, they engage in a battle. We're going to zoom in there. So right at the very top, that circle at the top there, they start there. They have that battle at Bezek, then where they fight Adonai Bezek. And, and then they win there, and then they, they start coming on down. You can see Benjamin in the orange there. That, that, bot, that circle right there is uh, Jerusalem, where they stop by and set it on fire. And, uh, and then they travel down to uh, Hebron, and where's that third circle all the way at the bottom. We'll come back to Gilgal in the far right there. But... Uh, but it comes down, and that's about uh, uh, it's about 80 miles they travel uh, to to go to go that distance there, and uh, and so the two tribes are working together, and they are wonderfully successful. Uh, they um, so they they go they go they go through uh, they go through there, and they and they keep going down south. We'll zoom in down to the southern end there, 
And so they start going down, and they each one of those dots is a big, it's a battle, a city that's named that they take, and they go, they go south, and then they go and they turn towards the coast, and they go back up the coastline and go up that way. And so you can see Simeon is right in the center there, and the bottom of Simeon's territory is what's called the Negev. It's a kind of a desert area. And so that's, that's, you hear that pop up a lot. And now these, uh, these three tribes, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, are essentially considered the southern tribes. Uh, in time, Simeon and Benjamin are, will, be all, will all but be absorbed into Judah. Uh, and so, I mean, that's where the, you get Judea from. That's where you get the Jews from. It's, it's, it goes back to the tribe of Judah. And then we, uh, so, after we're, so after verse 21, we, we're, we're, we're done with the south, and we're going to move up uh, north. And so we're going to head up to north, and so we're going to hear about uh, the exploits that circle there down at Bethel. Uh, and so uh, they have a battle down there. Uh, and, uh, and, and then let's see here. Oh, yeah, and then um, now due to the fact that the tribe of Levi, because he talks about the house of Joseph. All right now, I don't I don't know if you've noticed, but you, you, Joseph is not considered a tribe of Israel, right? And that's because Levi uh, had no land allotment, and so Joseph's tribe essentially was divided into two, and uh, named after his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And so, and so we have the exploits here. So when it says the house of Joseph, it means those two are working together to do, uh, and they they are also successful initially, even though it goes bad later. Uh, and so, uh, and so, verses twenty-two to twenty-nine, that covers the the exploits of those two tribes, the house of Joseph with Ephraim and Manasseh. And then from there, we go further. Uh, so you have Ephraim right there. Then you have Manasseh right there. And then you have, um, and then you have, and then you go further north into the exploits of Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. Uh, so. Now, if you're counting, uh, you will note that we did not name 12 tribes. We're missing a few. Now, part of this is because, and we'll go back to this main map here. Uh, on the right-hand side there, you have half the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh, uh, Manasseh um, but then you also have the tribe of Gad and Reuben, and they had settled prior to entering the Promised Land. They had gone with the Israelites into the initial conquest of the land, they completed their work, and they went back home. So, uh, but we're still missing one that is not named here because we've heard about Dan, and Dan is, uh, Dan is next to Ephraim, right, right there. Dan is to the right of Ephraim. But w the one that is not named, and we don't exactly know why, is Issachar. Issachar is not mentioned as doing anything, but I, I, I have a guess that I'll, I'll give you later. So, <coughs> but, uh, so, so this passage, though, as we think about this passage, you think about the geography. Geography is very important in the Old Testament. Uh, and because geography uh, very often reveals covenant grace and covenant judgment. Covenant grace and covenant judgment. Um, now, when you read the book of Joshua, the book before this one, um, everyone's favorite parts of the book are not chapters 15 to 17. Chapters 15 to 17 are the land allotments. Now, I know everyone's favorite part of the Bible are land surveys, right? They're so exciting. Ooh, tell me, the where are the boundary markers again? <laughs> Don't give me Elijah and Mount Carmel with fire from the sky. 
Yeah, tell me where the borders are for Manasseh again, you know, All right? But you know who would have absolutely loved Joshua chapter 15 and 17? Abraham. He would have loved that. Because back in Genesis 15, God had covenant with Abraham to give this land to his descendants. And now Joshua is allotting the territory, assigning the territory out to the tribes. And then they made the initial foray. They started to take the land. And now they need to fully take control of it. They need to drive the people out. And so here is God who has made promises to, to make for himself a people and give them a place and to be with and bless them. And here is the land part of that promise, the place part of those promises. And God is clear again and again, I mentioned it last week, that this gift of land is not because the people of Israel are wonderful or because they're uniquely worshipful or righteous. They are, in fact, rather stiff-necked and rebellious. God is, uh, likes to repeat himself on that point uh, to Israel to let them know they do not deserve what they are about to receive. But they are called. They belong to God. They are his treasured possession. And in his mercy, he is giving them a place to live. This is illuminated in chapter 1, verses 11 to 15, where, where Caleb, the former faithful spy, uh, now elder of Israel, offers his daughter to the man who will capture a city for him. Othniel, who will later be the first judge of Israel, does it. And, uh, and this, now this was a good way to raise your status uh, in, in the ancient world, was to uh, win the hand of an important person's daughter. Uh, and uh, now David will do something similar when he marries into Saul's house. And not only does Othniel win himself a wife, but he also gets himself a piece of land in the Negev, which, remember, is on the very southern end of Simeon's territory. And, uh, and it, kind of, it goes through Simeon and Judah. And, so, uh, and now Caleb's daughter, for her part, shows her wisdom because she's like, if I'm living in the desert area, we need some water. And so she says, husband, let's get some water. And then I don't know if he doesn't ask or not. She says, go ask my dad for some to a place to get some water, and then, but then it shows her doing it. So, uh, but she goes, uh, she knows uh, what they need, and so she goes to her father, and he gives them not one but two springs to use. And that's a big deal. Wars are fought over water in the desert. But here is a big, a picture of blessing that it comes to a particular family, uh, who and this family who shows faithful faithfulness to the covenant of God, obedience. Uh, and, uh, and, and God is showing kindness to them. They have land and they have water. Who could ask for more? Deroff Davis in his commentary also notes, um, it's interesting how this book begins with the line about the death of Joshua. And, he's, and he notes how interesting it is that books of the Old Testament tend to begin that way. The book of Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. The book of Judges uh, begins with the death of Joshua. Um, uh, and uh, and um, Joshua uh, begins with the death of Moses. And 1 Kings begins with the death of David. And this is where the book uh, starts, is with the death of a crucial leader in, in God's people. And yet, through these deaths of important people, God shows his sufficiency. He shows uh, how he works in spite of deaths of importance and, and really irreplaceable leaders in the life of his people. You know, God, God, and it just shows that God is always sufficient to lead his people 
to raise up new leaders after them in order to accomplish his will. Uh, it, it reminds me, I was, I was sitting with, um, uh, when I was an intern at, at Carthage, I was sitting with, uh, at lunch, uh, just a fly on the wall with Steve Jones and Perry McCall. And, who were, um, and so we're sitting there and, uh, and they were talking about how D. James Kennedy had just passed away. And, uh, and, as, and I was like, who's D. James Kennedy? <laughs> and they were like, you've never heard of D. James Kennedy? I'm like, no, no idea who that is. Is he a singer? What is he? You know, and so um, I knew something per- important in the church. Uh, but, but, uh, but he, um, and, and, the, and they were just like, and, and Perry just points at me and goes, exactly. <laughs> like, you don't need everyone, like if we lose a D. James Kennedy or an R.C. Sproul, like there's going to be more leaders. It's not that these weren't godly, wonderful, amazing men that God used to do wonderful things in the life of his people, but they're not the last good ones. Like they're not the last people that God will use. He will continue to raise up new leaders and new and so, and so and so to remember that that God is the one who is constant. God is sufficient. And that we are reminded with the deaths of these men that God is not involving himself in our stories, but he is involving us in his. Right? He is using us in his grand story. This too is a part of God's grace. As he continues to lead us through loss and death and the transition of leadership, which we are about to see gets really, really hard in the book of Judges. Now, there's, so there's grace here, covenant grace, as God fulfills his promises and he brings the people into the land and he's blessing them. But there's also judgment. Now, one thing is that God made clear about Israel that they were about to go into the land is that they were going to have to fight. And they were going to have to fight against the Canaanites and they're going to have to drive them out. But Why? One of the objections raised against the Bible is is found here in the book of Judges. Is this not genocide? How could God order the destruction of these innocent tribes people? And God is very clear. These people are not innocent. Leviticus 18 verses 6 through 30 gives a thorough summary of of uh, of the people whose habits were marked by incest of various kinds, religious child sacrifice, Sexual morality, including homosexuality and even sexual relations with animals. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14 adds on to this idolatrous practices like divination, contacting the dead and attempting to raise the dead through necromancy. These were what the Bible calls abominable customs and practices of the local people. And according to the Lord, the wickedness of the Canaanites had become full, and it was time for the axe to fall, and Israel was God's axe. And now, to make this clear, um, we consider chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, with the battle at Bezek, where they fought against a guy named Adonai Bezek, which just means the Lord of Bezek. He was the king of Bezek, who's in charge. And Judah and Simeon fought, uh, fought together, and they fought against him, and they won. And then they took him, and they cut off his thumbs and his toes. His big toes. And we go, wow, that's, that's bad. That's bad. It's gruesome. It's gruesome. It is. Well, why? Well, for one thing, to do that to a warrior king uh, would mean that he was now unsteady on his feet and he could never hold a spear. So he is done. No more fights for Adonai Bezek. But secondly, and more importantly, he admits himself that he had done this to 70 other kings. 
That's it. And now the number 70 is probably symbolic, but he's saying, I've done this to a lot of rulers, if not 70 of them, then a bunch of them. In fact, they used to pick up scraps around my dinner table like beggars as a symbol of my power because I had these, these men down who used to rule down like dogs now. And so, uh, and so he says, and so he says, God has repaid me for what I have done. Adonai Bezek gets it. This is divine retribution. God turning the evil of uh, uh, his own evil on his head. Because as far as I can tell, this was even not the standard practice of Israel to cut off big toes and thumbs. It seems like they did it because he did it. So... Our God is a just God, and he will carry forth his justice into the world, and he will often use other nations and circumstances to accomplish that justice. But one day, there will come, it will come when the whole world will stand before God in judgment. And so we ought to ask ourselves, if we are the undeserving Israelites, blessed by God and his mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we like the Canaanites, who will come under the hand of judgment in due time when our wickedness is full. So we spent a lot of time in that beginning. The, the next two points will be a, a bit shorter. And so, uh, but the second point here is that we are considering the, uh, moving from the geography of, of this text and what it teaches us, we're going to learn some lessons from the field of battle. And, and, and this is marked off by a very strong start on the part of Israel. Israel starts off great. They inquire of the Lord, likely through a priest, to ask who will go up uh, to fight first, and Judah is selected. Uh, and that is significant. Israel's doing exactly what they should do. All right? so they, they are going to the Lord. They're asking him. They're honoring God as their king. They're obeying his command that he has given them to take possession of the land, uh, a command that apparently they've been delaying for a while because Joshua got on to them about it at the end of, at the end of that book. And so Judah wisely asked Simeon to join in the fight, and we, are told, and, and we are told the Lord gave the Canaanites to their hand, into their hand. Uh, this, was, uh, this was actually, remember, this was up north in Manasseh's territory where this occurred, where they fought Adonai Bezek. And so they, from there they head south, back, they, they head back south. And uh, let's see here. All right. Yeah, they, they, here they head, they head back south at this section right here. And, uh, and they go to Hebron, and, and, and then Debir, where Othniel uh, got, uh, got married. And so that's down in the, uh, down in the Negev section over there, and, uh, or in, in the southern part of Israel. Uh, then the coalition uh, marched on um, Horma uh, in Simeon's territory there. We're at verse 17 in the chapter. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, they went on the coastal tour, uh, you know, capturing those, those coastal cities, uh, Gaza, uh, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Uh, Caleb secured Hebron, but, uh, but Judah was unable to drive out some inhabitants in the plain. Um, and uh, we're told because the, they had chariots of iron. Uh, and actually, uh, those cities on the coast there, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, uh, would... Uh, they didn't hold those cities for very long because that's actually going to be where the Philistines live and come into power is on that side, that portion of that territory right there on the, coast, on the coastline. 
We're told that Benjamin, though Judah had initially captured Jerusalem and set it on fire, that they did, that they did not drive the inhabitants out of the city. And then we head, then we head and then uh, as we did before, we head to the north, and you have the battle at, Beth, at Bethel uh, there. And uh, Bethel means the house of God, and that, uh, and that name was given to that city originally by Jacob in the book of Genesis. Uh, and, and this is really kind of where things start to go bad. So everything's going well. The, the house of Joseph is working together. And then um, once they start going off on their own, things start going bad. Uh, but before we get there, we need to note uh, God, that how God seems to bless his, his, these tribes when they work together. Uh, it's striking that both times when the tribes work together, when Judah and Simeon work together, and when Ephraim and Manasseh work together, that we are told the Lord is with them and he blesses them. They were successful. They accomplished the, what the Lord had tasked them to do. And this is just a, even just a little reminder for us as Christians. We need one another. That as churches, we, we need other churches to band together that we may be successful. Unity itself is not a virtue. Uh, but there is power when we are unified together under the banner of Christ. Power to endure. Power to do what God has commanded us to do. Yet for this strong start, this initial victory, uh, we, are, uh, we are moved to, uh, to, uh, to basically a withering finish. And uh, Benjamin had already failed to drive out the Canaanites, but now Manasseh fails to take any of the major cities in that territory. And, uh, and their failures to take uh, those cities, uh, Tanakh and Iblim and Megiddo, will actually come back to haunt them later. Uh, likewise, uh, Ephraim uh, fails to take Gezer, which actually won't fall under Israelite control until Solomon's reign. Uh, and, this, and this becomes the pattern that's repeated by the rest of the tribes of the north, Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali, the northernmost tribes. And then there is Dan. It's funny. It's just, it's, it's just, that's an American name. It's just one that stops at. It might as well be the tribe of Bob. It just always stands out to me. Dan. All right, so Dan is the, is the only tribe, in verses 34 to 36, it's the only tribe that not only fails to take any land at all, but is actually driven out from the plains. They basically are, have, the, have the opposite of their objective occur, kind of the opposite of taking of the land. They're being removed from the land by its inhabitants. And while it says in four instances that the tribes, though they failed to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, did put them under forced labor, we are reminded that this is not what they were called to do. That Issachar is left out in silence only makes us wonder if they even tried after the debacle with the tribe of Dan. Now we're going to get into the heart of the failure in just a moment, but let us simply see here that when the tribes fail to work together, they make no progress, and in at least one case, head the, ex the exact opposite direction with respect to the commands of God. And here is where we need to come into the moral of the story, um, or what I, as, or, or as, I, uh, as, as I called it, uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Because we, as the, uh, because when you read, if it wasn't clear in chapter one, it becomes very clear in the first five verses of chapter two, 
that what we have before us are successful failures. From any pragmatic standpoint, Israel has been wildly successful. I mean, for an, as in terms of an invading force, they have taken over the southern part of the land. Uh, even while they perhaps were less successful in the north, they now have a stronger grip on the land and should be able to press forward in time to take total control. They, they pressed a bunch of people into forced labor for them, so they've got that going for them. But we find out that the angel of Yahweh is not pragmatic. The task given to Israel was not to dominate the Canaanites, but to drive them out. Yahweh reminds them of their Exodus heritage, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his faithfulness thus far in the covenant that he had made. He reminds them of their instructions not to covenant with the people of Canaan. But Israel has not obeyed the voice of the Lord. They have violated the covenant of Yahweh, and he declares that he will no longer drive out the people. Rather, he will make them thorns in their sides and make their gods a snare to the people of Israel. Israel has succeeded pragmatically, but failed spiritually. We must be wary of pragmatism in that sense, if it requires us to compromise our faith and obedience to the Lord. We must beware worldly successes um, is actually a term. It's interesting. There's a term uh, that comes from a, a Roman um, enemy from early Rome days before they were an empire. And his name was Pyrrhus. And he fought against he was he was called in. There's one guy fighting against the Romans. And so then he's he, and he gets another guy. He says, I need your help. So he comes in and he brings in he brings in a force. and He fights against the Romans. And he has a smaller force. He beats the Romans. And he's like, Yes, I got it. But he but he loses almost all his men. And so and so and so when and so now and so now but the Romans have more resources, so they're able to refill their ranks. And he doesn't because he's far away from home and he can't refill his ranks. And so guess who loses? So if you've ever heard the term of a Pyrrhic victory, um, it's it's a victory that is won with such loss that it's you wonder if you really won it all. And so and so you're and so you know, as, as you know, the Lord Jesus, he said, it is no use to gain the world, but lose your soul. You know, maybe you won this, but what did it cost? And so we have to ask ourselves, where have we compromised? Where we've muddied the clear commands of God upon us? Where we've made excuses for our sins in the name of pragmatism or just expedience or just ease and comfort? Now, encouragingly, we see what we can only call the beginnings of repentance here. A time of celebration has become an occasion for weeping. Hence, they give the place the name Bochem. And so I'll bring up the map where, uh, where it is. Let's see here. Uh, got it. There we go. The circle to the right, right there. So that's, uh, there's Gilgal's right there. And then right next to Gilgal uh, is, uh, is uh, this place, um, Bochum, uh, which means, in the Hebrew, weepers. But they do what's right. Israel calls upon the name of Yahweh. They sacrifice to make atonement for their sins and their failures. But the question remains here at this point, will Israel now obey the voice of the Lord? Will they do what is right? Will they do what Yahweh commands? 
And for us, we know that Christ has been sacrificed for our sins upon the cross. And as such, we are called to worship and to weep over our own sin, turning from sin to Christ for salvation. As his people, we may find ourselves in the place where we have abandoned the unity of faith in Christ with our brothers and sisters. And we have pursued moral compromise for worldly gains. If we find ourselves in the place, then we are instructed here by the example of Israel to look to the sacrifice of Christ. To look upon his death with repenting tears. To receive the grace of God that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then, by his grace and power, to make holy war upon our sin, the sin that offends our most holy father. This chapter is a dizzying one. But we have observed here a geography that preaches covenant mercy and judgment. We've seen important lessons on the unity of faith in Christ. For even from the field of battle. And a warning that we too can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory through moral and spiritual compromise. But we have hope always before us because of our blessed Savior who renews us and redeems our failures and our sins. Let us repent from the heart and engage anew by the Spirit's power and grace in the obedience to the commands of God and obedience that can only proceed in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even as your people, when we stumble and fail, when we, too, when we too much reflect the, the path and the story of Israel here, where we start out strong, but we start making compromises along the way, and we lose sight of the commands that you have given to us. We thank you that your grace is powerful, that your grace is undeterred and unwavering. And so, Father, we pray. That whenever we find ourselves individually, or even as a church, when we find ourselves off, when we find ourselves having strayed from your commands, having compromised ourselves, having walked even in outright disobedience, that we would turn in repentance, that we would have grief over our sins, that we would hate them that we would turn into your righteous way, trusting in Jesus. Father, may you cleanse us, Lord, and may you show us the everlasting way that we may walk in righteousness and faith until that day comes when you bring us into the kingdom of God, into our place of rest, of eternal rest and glory. Father, we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name.